Welcome to the ARPA Animal Rescue of the Week podcast, featuring outstanding organizations around the country that are helping animals and the people who rescue them. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Dubert.com. Dubert is a free website designed to connect volunteers with rescues and shelters, and the only site that automates rescue relay transport. Let's meet this week's featured animal rescue. Canine Commitment is located in New Hampshire and started in December of 2010. They have two primary locations where the dogs stay until they find their forever home. Canine Commitment is saving hundreds of lives each year, and each year they continue to grow more and more with the wonderful support of not only their volunteers, but the community around them. Hey Ross, welcome to the show. Hi there. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And yourself? I'm doing great. So you're here today to talk to us about Canine Commitment, and I'm really excited to kind of dive in a little bit more and see what you guys are doing over there. So why don't you kick us off with what your mission is and where you're located and a little bit of background. Okay, thanks. Yeah, we uh, actually have two licensed locations, both within New Hampshire. My rescue partner and myself are both licensed shelters in the state of New Hampshire. New Hampshire doesn't really have anything that is for rescues, so we have to license the same way as a brick and mortar shelter. Um, And we save dogs of all ages, sizes, degrees of fluffiness, doesn't make any difference to us. Um, All of our dogs are from the South, so we're moving dogs from a more populated part of our country to New Hampshire where we don't have animals available for adoption like they do in other parts of the country. Uh, We move highly adoptable dogs that are ready to get into homes that otherwise would sit in shelters and languish down south. And we have up here, we are very fortunate to have more adopters than we have animals. Um, So we uh, get them up uh, legally, safely, make sure they're healthy, paperwork is in great order, and and we find them great homes. And we're very fortunate that we don't have any trouble to do that. Yeah, so one of the things that really stands out for me is that you guys have more adopters than dogs. And I know we're going to get into that a little bit more, but that is definitely a problem that we don't typically hear from from rescues and, and shelters. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what your community is like? Are you in a small town? Um, how many people? Tell us the kind of, um, tell us a little bit about what the needs are of the community. Sure. Well, I'm from Texas originally, so I will tell you all the towns in New Hampshire are small to me, but our our largest town in New Hampshire is Manchester, and that's 100,000 people. That's our largest city in the state of New Hampshire. So very rural. We have Manchester and Concord and Portsmouth areas are kind of our populated regions, but my little town is 5,000 people. I'm in the country on 22 acres. My rescue partner is in Manchester in, in a, you know, dense neighborhood. Um, but we are, I think, as a whole, if um, that's what you're asking, a, a community that loves animals, um, very rescue-minded. We, ha- we, you know, it's part and parcel with having more adopters than we have dogs. It's because people are choosing to to adopt uh, time and time again, and 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 really making the effort to do it because it can be a little more work up here than walking into your local shelter. It takes some time because you got to find one, and um, sometimes that takes some time. And all of the rescues are very, very busy trying to get through the number of adopters and make the matches and, and all that. So it really takes a little more effort to, to stick with rescue in, in our neck of the woods. But very, very supportive community, very supportive. There's no one up here asking me why I'm putting so much work into dogs. I, you know, as I hear sometimes in the South or did when I was in Texas, like they're not worth it. They're not, you know, what? we don't hear that up here at all, at all. It's a very supportive community. 
Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's really great. And being from a small town, you know, it has it has its benefits, right? There's benefits to small town and in large cities and and I love talking to rescues in in small towns because their challenges are so different. Um so why don't we just really dive in here and and I want to learn a little bit more about why you don't have that many dogs in your community. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about what that is? Uh, well, why we don't have so many dogs in our community is really a, a population that spays and neuters. Um, we just don't have a culture up here that will tolerate a pickup full of puppies at the Walmart parking lot on a Sunday morning or puppies being given away on the side of the road. We, we really just don't have a community that will tolerate that it would get called into six different police departments if, if you know I, I tell people when i moved up here from texas i haven't seen a stray dog running loose since i moved up here and people in texas will look at me like i'm nuts when i say that and likewise the people people up here are like what do you mean they just have dogs running loose down there you know i went to visit some of our rescue partners in mississippi a couple years ago and my rescue partner and i tried to save a few off the side of the road that we saw because they're just everywhere and that's not the case up here that's partially because of the weather difference up here absolutely um it, it's not possible to have a dog chained out year round out here uh really with the weather your neighbors won't tolerate that kind of thing so um there's a lot that goes into not having but i you know at the at the base of it it's about our culture up here and and people wanting to care for the animals in their lives um possibly possibly i've you know has something to do with farming mentality versus not farming mentality i think in the south where the dogs are outside they're not part of your lives as much because they can be outside all year just you know that leads to it it's not that it's better people in one part of the country or the other but absolutely a different culture and then I got into rescue because I, I, you know, I've always loved animals. Obviously, all my dogs have always been rescues. And when uh, first time I was adopting up here, um, there weren't any, you know, puppies available in the shelter. And uh, I, there was a woman that was working out of Maine. I connected with her and I met her at the transport truck. That's what you used to do uh, here in New Hampshire. It's no longer legal to do that. But when I got my dog, Cora, uh, almost 11 years ago, it was. So we went to the transport truck and there were 50, 60 people there waiting. And the rescue woman from Vermont was there and a litter of puppies came off the truck and was put in a little X-Pen and I chose my puppy. Well, the woman who was running the rescue was my age exactly. Her kids were the same ages as mine. My, at that time, my youngest was 18 months old and she was driving over from Maine every week to meet this transport and facilitate adoptions and take some back to, to Maine and whatnot. And I looked at her and I said, you drive over every week? Like, you know, if you ever need a hand, you should give me a call or something. I could pick up a dog. Yeah. <laughs> so I think she recognized a fellow crazy person. She saw it in my eyes that I was, sure. a, soft, I was a soft target. So um, two weeks later, I picked up the first dog for her. Two months later, I had 18 dogs at my house for 48 hours. And then I but just started, I, I was just helping her out. And suddenly I was getting emails from people in the South asking me directly. I have no idea how these people got my name. And it was just a snowball running downhill from there. Um, we eventually moved my family to a new property. We were um, in a more densely populated area that wasn't very happy about a rescue in the neighborhood. So we moved to a new home so I could keep doing this. We're on 22 acres zoned agricultural and uh, got our 501c3 and just never looked back i you know we're doing 700 to 800 dogs a year out of our two locations now so that's kind of how i stumbled into it and the relationships with the south i will tell you when i started doing this out of my house um in the first town i was in um and you know like i said my daughter was 18 months old i found out very quickly that that relationship with the sending rescue was one of the most important things because 
they have such different pressures down there. They're trying to save them. They're trying to get them out of danger, you know, just out, 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 out. But I had different pressures up here about legalities and having this dog in my house that was just moved, you know, 1500 miles and stuff. So having that relationship where we understand one another's challenges and, and support one another and support them and what they're doing down there and what they need. And then they understand that it does nobody any good to move a dog that isn't adoptable 1500 miles. That That's just not what we're doing. So those relationships are very important. And, and uh, most of the people with whom we work now, we've worked with for years. So a couple of things, right, that, that kind of stand out to me is one, this industry really sucks you in, right? And I think your your story uh, is proof of that. The word mafia is mentioned a lot. Yeah. There you the go. Rescue mafia. There you go. That's a new one for me. But I see the truth in that. I definitely see the truth. So yeah, and it happens quickly, right? It really only takes one story or one incident to really kind of draw you in. So I I do want to ask, I mean, so you've been around for nine years, which is a great accomplishment, especially in the rescue world. So I want to share for others out there any challenges that you had in in starting a rescue. What's the main challenge when you first started the rescue that you came across? Um, and how did you overcome that? I wish I could narrow it down to one challenge. I it, it was the steepest learning curve I have ever been through in my life. Um, I did not come from an animal background. I did not come from a medical background. Um, so there were a lot of challenges there. I learned a lot. If it weren't for the vet with whom I worked at that time that really stuck with me and educated me and helped me and understood that you know my heart was in the right place even if i wasn't able to do everything i you know i wanted to do um and really what comes to mind is this conversation that my rescue partner and i have had about the challenges of running a rescue that it's really every angle because you're running a business so you have everything that comes with running a business and just as an aside i never had any desire to run a business so every time i have to deposit and this that and the other i'm just sticking a fork in my eye but you're you're running a business but you're not only running a business you have those challenges of the financial whatever but then you're a nonprofit, so you have that oversight the irs stuff the the fiscal responsibility of running a nonprofit in the u.s that you have to pay attention to and all the legalities and all of that so you've got that on top of that and then we work with the general public people can be very fascinating to deal with um, on a day-to-day basis. There's absolutely a customer service aspect to it, yet we're not paid, right? So, and at the end of our transaction, I have to want to invite these people to my home. You know, they, these are strangers that are coming in and out of our homes, dozens of them each week. So that's another angle. And then on top of that, we have the health aspect. We have puppies that are puppies. And puppies like to get sick at the drop of a hat, you know, and not give you any warning. So I, the challenges, I, I would put them into that those four court categories where you know the business aspect may not be a challenge for someone else because they run their own business and can do financial statements in their sleep that was not me um the marketing stuff is all me that's my background so i don't have any trouble writing and doing all that stuff but um the irs part the nonprofit, and staying on top of all of that that's a whole other angle and then health and understanding the best way to handle these animals is a whole other challenge that takes some real medical knowledge. You know, I'm doing sub-Q fluids and vaccinating dogs myself and doing all kinds of things that I never would have foreseen because I I didn't have any medical or health-related desires or or skills. Um, And then uh, 
dealing with the public, the customer service aspect. You know, it's it's one thing for you to to email, text, phone call, Facebook message your realtor at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night because that realtor is potentially going to make thousands of dollars working with you. And that's that's what they're doing for their livelihood. But, you know, I have people that drive in my driveway on the 4th of July and ask me if I'm open while I'm down at my pool at a pool party, you know, kind of thing. And and there's not an end game of saving more money for my kids college education out of it. Sure. So that's the best I can frame that is that it, it's it comes at you from so many different angles. Yeah. So let me ask the question. Then those are four really good categories. Now, on the days where you really struggled, right, and you knew you wanted to do it for the animals, what pushed you through? What got you over those hurdles to continue? The success, the success stories. Absolutely. I, if I didn't have, I can talk about people that are difficult to manage. And I, I know our little human brains are kind of pre-wired to, to hold on to those negative stories, you know, fire hot, you know, people fascinating. Um, but there are so many amazing people that walk through my door every day just have stuck with it you know it's taken them six weeks to find a puppy and they didn't just drop everything and go to a pet store or a breeder they 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 get it you know they want to be part of the solution they know that taking one of these dogs that otherwise wouldn't have a home or opens up a space for another one is being part of the solution and not part of the problem actively being part of the solution if we didn't have those people there's no way there's no way i wouldn't have lasted that's what keeps you going is when you know it just i cosmic something there are days where you're just like what am i doing why am i doing this get me out of here like how quickly can i extricate myself from this yeah and those seem to be the days where i'll just get this amazing email and update that's you know our lives are changed by this animal because of what you know because of adopting this dog i'm now aware of the problem and started volunteering at our local shelter or you know that absolutely it's those success stories that that pick you up on the bad days yeah, I think that's important to remember, right? Because running a, a rescue is is pretty difficult, and and like you said, you're running it out of your home. And at the time when you started, you had you know young children, and you know you're putting a lot on the line, and you're trusting people, and and so, you know, with rescues and even with shelters, there's a lot of letdown, right? With people, yes. as to your point, their you know, their actions have consequences to not only themselves but to everybody around them, and to have a rescue out of your home that that adds an extra piece of of stress right to what you're doing so i can imagine you had several um bad days while getting started and and so it is nice to hold on to the success stories and and the positive interactions that you have with people so i normally ask about um those feel-good stories at the end but since we're talking about that now do you have a story that that is kind of your go-to story that really just that touched you in a way that you just can't forget Honestly, in nine years, there are so many. I The dogs and the condition that we get them in, I, you know, I'll have somebody come in and go, oh, we found out our dog that we adopted from XYZ shelter was full of buckshot. I'm like, yeah, that's just a Tuesday and rescue. I mean, we get them all the time with, oh, I started licking your paw and a buckshot started coming out, you know. Um, just all kinds of crazy stories. And watching those dogs still have faith in people. I mean, if if one one thousandth of what had happened to some of these dogs had happened to me, I would bite people. Um, and, and they just come in and wag those tails and they're so optimistic that this next person's going to love me. We do have, um, I have, uh, I'm actually picking up a dog tomorrow at, who's been at a trainer for a couple of months and his name is Britton and he is, uh, about a four-year-old blue-nosed pit bull and he is actually named 
for my blue nose pit bull, Britton, who was the, um, uh, I lost him about four years ago. He was almost 16. And by the way, I do not recommend ever naming a dog after one of your own dogs. It's not, <laughs> I, I would get these, I would get these reminders that Britton has a vet appointment and my heart would skip a beat for a second thinking about my Britton. So I won't be doing that again, but <laughs> for better or worse, this Britton and um, the rescue coordinator at the shelter with whom we work, um, we, you know, messaged, messaged, messages constantly. And here's a picture of this dog or here's this or da, 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 you know, that that dog got scratched because he's got fur loss or whatever. And uh, this picture came across and, uh, Immediately, she wrote and said, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to send that to you. Well, she knew I had a soft spot for blue-nosed pit bulls. <laughs> sure. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I don't know that that was really an accident, but I was yeah, like. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I was like, who's that? <laughs> and uh, Britton had been found in a ditch with wire wrapped around his hind legs. So, presumably, so whoever dumped him, he couldn't chase after the car. Sure. Which is also why so many of the dogs end up with buckshot because they'll do something to scare the dog away from them so they can't follow them after they dump them. So he had this wire wrapped around his hind legs. And as you can imagine, his hind legs were, they were just, you know, degloved, skin missing, horrible, horrible, horrible condition. And uh, the shelter really just, you know, was too overcrowded and unable to really handle his medical needs. And I had a, a foster in the area that was kind enough to go and pick him up and, and get to work on him. And we got him dewormed and heartworm tested and all the things that we have to do to make sure he's not contagious to transport him to New Hampshire. And, and all of that was taken care of. And the legs weren't healed yet, but I was like, let me just get him up here so I, 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 I can take care of him. I need him here. So I well, that, that started a year-long odyssey. So I spent eight months trying to heal up the worst of the legs. And it just, I mean, we were rewrapping those legs two to three times a week. And we would put a blanket down and load up a Kong or a bone with peanut butter. And it got to the point where he just knew we would get that blanket out and he would come over and lay down on his right hand <laughs> on his side and flop down and just be ready for it. And my helper would hold the peanut butter Kong for him and I would rewrap. And we got the, the skin to heal twice, um, but it was just too, too thin and just kept coming off. So we finally made the decision to amputate the leg after eight long months, which wow. was heartbreaking. But I, he'd been living in my kennel building for eight months of that. But I wanted him in a home. Right. So I thought, well, all right, we're going to amputate the leg. He's going to be fine. We've had lots of dogs with amputated limbs that just live great lives. It's no problem. Um, it was a little harder after eight months of hard work trying to save the leg. But so last July, we amputated the leg. And I thought, you know, six six weeks recovery, we'll be able to get him into a home. Well, not not one, two post-surgical post, uh, antibiotic resistant infections took us into like November. <laughs> so we were looking at the one year anniversary of having this dog here. So of course, every volunteer here just absolutely loved him. I would bring him over to my house. He would go in my car with me to take my kids. He knew, you know, every Thursday night we'd hang out and wait for my kids at their performance classes and he would wait and I'd get his leash on and we'd go for a walk around the place and, um, you know, just part of our lives here. But he'd also been here a little too long in terms of his mental needs and emotional needs. So uh, we have a trainer with whom we work and she was willing to take him on. So he went to her and uh, he was supposed to go for a month and she wrote me after a week and said, this dog is awesome. He's a dream. I want to keep him um, and work with him some more. So he stayed a couple months with her um, and somebody started emailing me right before he went to the trainer and uh, I pick him up tomorrow and all goes well. That dog will be in a home on Sunday. That's and awesome. Many tears will be shed for my little three-legged guy going on his way, but 
Yeah. It's been, you know, so many of our dogs, like average stay for puppies here is eight days. So to have a dog, have a dog here for, for a year, you know, to be able to get to know a dog that much was not ideal for him. I would have rather him, you know, have been in a home way back, but that wasn't possible because of his health. But um, to be able to get a, get to know a dog that, that well is, is unusual and a little bit heart wrenching, but pure sweetness as well, because he deserves it. Yeah, and I'm sure you'll be following along right after he gets into his forever home and, you know, hopefully you stalking. stay in touch. And I think the word I'm is stalking. stalking. Yeah, <laughs> stalking them and send pictures. <laughs> that's fair, but at least you'll get the update from him, right? So yes, that's amazing. And, you know, we don't often hear about those, um, the stories that take so long. So I definitely agree that, you know, there's always investment in animals and, you know, and each animal has their own story, but to have one in your care for that long right and you've right. tried everything um yeah. and then to have them come out on the other side and and have them work with the trainer and the trainer's got wonderful things to say about them um and i agree it, it the animals have a way of of forgetting about the past yes. it's really incredible um you know if we could only just learn from that as humans right we'd we'd all be so much better off that's what my vet would say to me when I would get upset about it. And, and he'd just say, it's in his past, Ross. It's in his past. He's not focused on it. He's so happy to be here right now getting treats from us, hanging out in the vet's office. It's his past. Let it be. It, it's yeah. gone and over with for him. So quit dwelling on it. Just yeah. you know, move forward. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's very interesting with that, right? Because as your vet tells you, right, it's their past. It's like if they can forget it, we should be able to right. forget it. But yet right. it's as humans, we tend to hang on to those onto those feelings because we we just can't believe that other humans do that to animals. And I think that's the hard thing for us to get over. Well, and especially when it's so hard to see justice done in the South. You know, uh, one of the other stories that came to mind is a just quickly a dog that was you know, drug behind a truck. They tied him oh up my to the gosh. back of the truck. Yeah, and uh, it was an older gentleman and his grandson videotaped it laughing the whole time as they drug Champ along. And, you know, the good story out of that was that the man actually was arrested. He got a slap on the wrist out of it. And everyone up here in my neck of the woods was just, oh my God, like, why wasn't he in jail? I was like, actually, it's a good story that they actually cared about it, that he did get arrested. Um, that he got any repercussions because I, you know, so many times we'll see a story about a dog that was chained out this out of the other and all through our Facebook page, it's people going, I hope they were arrested. I hope they were turned into the sheriff. And up here, they just don't understand that the sheriff you might call in that rural county in Tennessee also has a dog chained out in all weather in his yard. Right. You know, they just, they don't, I, I talked to one sheriff in Mississippi who clearly was so happy to have someone that he could say this. He's like, I don't have a law to charge people with. He said, I could have my deputy pull up in the driveway and they're beating that dog with a hammer. And he said, I don't have a, a law to charge them with. Oh my gosh. Because they don't have any animal cruelty laws up there. So that disconnect of people up here going, I hope they throw the book at them. I'm like, they can't, they don't have a book to throw with these people because yeah, it's so different down there. So Champs guy did get um, a slap on the wrist, but it made national, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, made, made the local news all across the state of Mississippi. And I had other groups with whom I work in Mississippi that were like, you're getting champ. I was like, yes, we're getting champ. We're getting him out of out of there. Yeah. He's living, uh, he is living the life. Let me tell you, that dog is hit the jackpot with amazing <laughs> adopters and a cushy couch and, and quite the luxurious life. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I, there's always sad stories. And, you know, and I think that's why I like highlighting those, 
those good feel good ones, right? You know, I think it's important that there is another side to that and humanity can be good, right? We're getting better. Well, it's getting harder to hide, right? Social media cameras. Yeah, yeah. you know, it's that that video of Champ getting drug, yeah, you know, was shared and it somebody showed it to somebody at work and that's the person yep. that called and you know and it got there. But and I yeah. and I do say that with every adoption, with every adoption here, um, you know, that that puppy has been here for eight days. Um, I always say to my adopters, please give us updates. I was like, I've had this puppy or this dog for eight days, two weeks, whatever it is. But the foster in the South that took them from skin and bones and mange and worms and had them for six weeks or eight weeks, they don't get to see this happy ending. All they got to do was put this dog on a truck. Right. Right. So, and they're in the trenches. So I am very careful, careful to always do that and, and make sure that those happy endings get shared with the people that put so much blood, sweat and tears, but can't adopt locally. They're not getting the happy endings where they are locally. So I, I am very, very careful about that. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. You know, you mentioned earlier that relationships with descending organizations is key for you. And I hear that, you know, from other organizations as well. But I think one of the things that I really like about what you're doing is you're doing a follow up with them. You're making their work worthwhile because they know that the dogs are going to a good forever home. And I, I, that's something I don't hear very often. So I definitely love that you take the time because it's it's not hard, but it's time consuming right. to to reach out and ask for the pictures and the stories. And and then you share that with the sending organizations. So I do think that's a really cool thing that you're doing. It, it's huge. And I, and I do, in my crazy 90 mile an hour life, have to make it a priority. And I tell every adopter as they're walking out the door, when I know which foster had your dog, and I get an update from you. You may not hear back from me. I may not have a minute to sit down and go, thank you so much. I mean, obviously I always try, but I was like, even if you don't hear from me, I assure you, I am very, very good about hitting forward and yeah. making sure that it gets into the hands. Of course, we have a really active adopter group now on Facebook. And so we have those fosters and those really active rescuers in the South on there so they can interact with the adopters. And that's the other thing nowadays when, when we're having a low day, I'll just go on that page because that'll pick you right back up all the yeah. happy and, and these people that are working so hard in the south getting to see these dogs crawled up in front of the fireplaces and romping in the snow yeah. and yeah and they can see it immediately and it, and it takes me out of the me and my crazy 90 mile an hour life out of the equation they it's a more direct connection for them yeah yeah so i want to spend a few minutes kind of talking about your your foster program and the volunteers that help you in your community um so why don't you tell us a little bit about that how many foster homes do you have? I'm assuming you're always looking for more. Is there a process in that for you? Tell us a bit more about the foster program within your organization. Yeah, so that's another area that we're a little bit different from other rescues. Um, New Hampshire, the way the law reads, uh, we actually can only use fosters for behavioral or medical purposes. Oh. So, yeah, and I've never really been able to get a very good explanation as to why because I would think anybody involved or vested in the emotional well-being of animals could see that being one of 15 in somebody's home versus being one of two in some foster home getting one-on-one attention would be a lot better. But that's not the way the laws are set up in the state of New Hampshire. I will tell you there are absolutely plenty of groups that just go about their business. I happen to be a crazy rule follower. So we don't have a lot of foster homes. We have our two licensed locations. Um, and at my home now, 
um, like I said, the, the, well, the dogs have their own building on my property. It's a two-story carriage house garage that's been converted for use. Um, heated and air conditioned and um, I have a, there's a bathroom in this building because there's like a mother-in-law apartment upstairs so that I, it's a, I, I run a, a micro shelter on my property basically. So um, when people ask me if I'm foster based or a shelter building, I'm like, eh, kind of neither. I'm, I'm this <laughs> new hybrid kind of sitting in between the two. But because it's a self-contained building, um, volunteers can come and go. So we have 25 to 30 volunteers that come and go within this building caring for the animals um, throughout the week, not through that <laughs> three to four a day, typically. Um, and a couple of employees that help as well to fill in the kind of harder to, to fill gaps, um, Friday nights and Saturdays and whatnot. And, uh, and my rescue partner's home, it's not that different. She is licensed out of her, her, you know, the one primary building, she doesn't have a separate building. So she utilizes fosters more so for animals that need a little more time when they arrive that they're a little more, you know, so some dogs get off the truck and transport uh, the transport truck in, in New Hampshire and kind of shake and look around and go, hello, New Hampshire. I'm in the house. <laughs> like, what is this way? And other dogs get off the truck and go, what is, what just happened to me? So sure. it, it, some of them do great with, and barely have a blip on their radar for the, for the transport, especially when they're with litter mates, of course, but even lots of the adults are like, okay, I'll play here. Like whatever. And, uh, but other ones need a little more time. So my rescue partner, um, but we really, at any given time, probably maximum of five dogs in foster. Whereas okay. I could have 25 at the building at my property and my rescue partner could have another 10 to 15 in her home. Um, so the volunteers are only here at my place uh, for that. And then outside of that, it's really uh, application processing, kind of the admin stuff and uh, event related. But we also don't do a lot of events because we don't, need to fundraise i know that's going to be you're going to pick up on that i know we don't really need to fundraise so yeah i know it's probably not something something you hear very much but. Uh, no and you're right i did you tried to get a little quiet on me and it didn't work um but the fascinating part to me is that the state laws indicate that you can only have foster homes for medical and behavioral. So as yeah. much as I don't understand that, I'm also a rule follower myself. And so I can understand and appreciate um, that you're staying within those uh, within those laws. Although that is very fascinating to me. I, now I'm intrigued right. and want to do some more digging um, on I know, New Hampshire. And nobody, nobody has been able to tell me, and we work um, with the kind of the animal law attorney here in New Hampshire. Sure. And, and nobody's really been able to give me a good answer as to why, but they will specifically tell you fosters are not to be used as an extension of space. So okay. I don't have room for these seven and I have two more coming in tonight, so I'm gonna to move two out to foster. That's not acceptable in the state of New Hampshire. Interesting, that's very fascinating. Yeah. So is. the other very fascinating part to me was the fact that you don't need to do fundraising. We don't. So the way I explain it to people is, if I had a hard time adopting dogs at a fee, that covers my costs, then I would do different things with my time, right? I would triage my time differently. I would save fewer animals so that I would have more time for whatever, grant writing, events, you know, putting on events or, you know, managing, even if you have 20 volunteers, you know, that's a, a time time commitment for someone to manage those volunteers and, and whatnot. So, but because we don't have that, so our puppies are, the adoption fee is 475 and our adults are 425. Now our dogs are spayed and neutered, they're microchipped, they're on heartworm and flea and tick prevention, they're you know, dewormed. We have to get a local hand, uh, uh, health certificate post-transport. 
and we have to pay for transport. There are groups that use volunteer leg to leg, um, like underground railroad kind of transports. That also would mean me rescuing less dogs because that would make my head spin a little bit trying to stay on top of that stuff. So we pay for transport. And there are large companies, like I said, started post Katrina that um, are USDA certified transports that we use. And we pay anywhere from between 100 to $175 per animal for transport. But we are able to adopt out our animals at a fee that covers our costs most of the time. Obviously, if the dog has been treated for heartworm or had the Britain who's being adopted on Sunday has cost me thousands at this point. But yeah. I was able, able to specifically fundraise with one post on Facebook to cover all of these costs. Yeah, yeah. It's a totally different world up here. So the 475 kind of even, you know, we pay a pool fee to the sending shelter with independent rescuers. I'm paying the vetting as the, as they go. So if animals get sick or whatever, I'm paying, you know, for hospitalization with parvo or cherry eye surgery or heartworm treatment or whatever. It all comes out in the wash. And we have we have some monthly donors and we do two or three events a year. We have, you know, the Amazon Smile donations set up. We have a few things here and there. Typically, we do one GoFundMe a year. We try and keep it to one. We did two last year, but typically we do one GoFundMe a year where we'll raise three to five thousand dollars. And those little chunks that come to me with not much effort, gratefully, with all right. gratitude, right. really, really help us fill in the gaps for the dogs that cost us way more than the adoption. Yeah, I think that's pretty amazing. And I also think it helps that you, you don't have the overpopulation like the southern states, right? And right. so, you know, I think a lot of people when they listen to this, they're going to say they charge $475 for a puppy. Right. Like, I think that's going to shock some people. We're middle of the road. There's, you know, Rhode Island's got a big group that's charging 600 so, I, so yeah. I think it's amazing that, that one, the community rallies around that and they understand that there is fees and costs involved in saving animals. Um, and I think that's the, for me, that's the, that's the story behind well, this is that. sometimes they understand. <laughs> I mean, we don't get me wrong. We get a lot of emails that are, are aren't you, you're crazy. I would never spend that. Um, or, or my favorite is I can afford a dog, but I can't afford your adoption fee which is just absolutely not the case. It's absolutely not the case in New Hampshire. I, you know, I, I just, one of my dogs just had a itty bitty cancer scare. And thankfully she responded to antibiotics so we didn't have to go to next levels, but just massive blood work, um, a sedated biopsy, some antibiotics. We were at $750 before we bat batted an eye. Sure. Just for that, right? So I, I, you know, I told my rescue partner, the next person who says they can afford a dog, but they can't afford the adoption fee. I, our vetting up here is very expensive. Okay. Very expensive. So I, that 475 represents $1,500 worth of like vetting up here. Sure. So there, you know, there's that, you know, if you can't afford that adoption fee that is an already altered animal that has at least three rounds of vaccines, rabies, you know, is really ready to go, just get right. keep them on heartworm and flea and tick. Um, there's a there's a bigger picture there, but it, and we have to get a we have to quarantine animals here for 48 hours, and then they have to see our vet for a local health certificate before they clear, clear quarantine. And you know, one of my vets of record, a single health certificate is 100 bucks. So you okay. could add 100 to 125 for transport, and then I'm paying that adoption fee that you mentioned at the at the shelter. So the, like the main shelter we pull from is 85 to 150, depending on the dog. Okay. So I pay that to cover their costs, but then I'm adding the 240 for my health certificate, my sure. the transport, and then I'm giving them a heart garden and next guard while they're here, and I'm deworming them while they're here, and I'm feeding them, you know? Yeah. So I, I have no trouble justifying our adoption fee to people, but 
and I, I think there are people out there that just think we're getting grants and all kinds of other money. But because I don't have to triage my time in that direction, I have no trouble adopting a dog at the, at the fee, then I choose to save more dogs yeah. right now. And if things change and I have a hard time adopting dogs, then I would have to make different decisions about my priorities sure. time, for sure. Yeah, I definitely, I'm, that's, it's fascinating to me, um, all of it, right? Everything from the laws that you have up there, the transporting from the southern states um, to New Hampshire, the fundraising aspect, the, you know, the adoption costs and fees and the process that you have to follow. It's definitely something that, that I don't hear, um, which I think all of those things make you guys, and I'm sure other rescues and shelters in New Hampshire, um, very unique. Uh, and so I like the other thing for me that also kind of stood out is a lot of rescues and shelters are the fundraising is a number one priority for them. And right. I like that you limit the amount of events that you have. For me, I feel like focused events is sometimes better than having an event every month. That's my personal opinion. Um, and so I like that you guys are more targeted and, and strategic in that. Well, um, I, I agree. I feel like, you know, I can look at other groups and see a GoFundMe every other week. Um, and I think you get this burnout as a viewer of those, like it doesn't have the same impact. Or what I was finding, you know, with, with people that would come to us with, you know, I sell such and such product from my home or whatever, whatever, cooking or makeup or whatever, fill in the blank. I want to do a fundraiser for you guys. And I was just finding that the same people over and over and over would, oh, okay, they're doing something else. I'm going to order you know, some spatulas or I'm going to order some of that, so that candle or whatever. And it, it just felt like everyone's doing that and we were losing. So I think that is maybe a little more unique to us and, and how I handle it, where I try and keep it targeted to once a year, here's a very specific need. My rescue partner and I just went down to Mississippi and our, our, eyes were bigger than our bank account and we need some help paying for these you know we pulled seven heartworm positive dogs that need to be tra treated before they're transported to us and we need help raising that two thousand dollars kind of thing yeah um so that is you know i see other groups handling it differently nothing against them but this has worked for us within within our community and, and yeah and, and what we do yeah and i think you have to adapt to your community and, and your and your supporters right and it sounds like you've done a, a great job on that so while we're talking about, you know, those events uh, and fundraising, what's coming up for you guys with that? Yeah, so here in New Hampshire, we have to squeeze a lot of living into a few months of decent weather. So we do tend to have a lot of events all at, all at once. Um, we just had an event last Saturday that was extremely successful, and I hope we, we do it more often, but it was at a, um, a large barn up here. We have a lot of horse-loving people up in our part of the part of the world as well. And uh, we have a young woman who volunteers for us who wanted to do a fundraiser at the barn she manages. So it was puppies and ponies. Um, and it was an extremely successful event. I was there for two and a half hours. I did nothing. The young woman did everything and put on an amazing event. And we raised $3,000 in two and a half hours. So Wow. Um, I'm hoping we'll keep doing those. But this time of year, uh, really, we'll start April, May, June. Uh, every year we do an event with a local uh, organization called the Holistic Pet, and they are fantastic. I've bought their products for years. Their products are made here. I, I, I really, hands down, recommend them to everybody. They do some great supplements that um, for aging dogs, joint issues, 
digestion. I use them with all my dogs right off transport as they're getting used to a new food here. And they have just been lovely to us. And we do their anniversary party in June, which is an outdoor event um, with a lot of various vendors and whatnot. So we do that with them. And we'll do a fall event that has like a costume party and whatnot with them. And then uh, my best friend lost her daughter to cancer five years ago. And she, her daughter was the first kid I ever had who chose not to get birthday presents for one of her birthdays and asked people to bring donations to the show, to the rescue instead. Um, so, and they have two dogs for me as well, of course. But uh, Maggie was just a wonderful, wonderful young woman that was taken way too soon by nasty, nasty cancer. And they do a, a music festival every year in her honor called Magapalooza. Um, so we uh, will be there in early June, as we are every year, to celebrate Maggie's life and uh, dance in her honor with some some puppies. We have a puppy kissing booth. Um, That's so that cute. Bring. Yeah, yeah, everyone's doing it now. Nobody had it when we first got it. I might, I might have to <laughs> rework it to a photo booth or something new because now everybody's got a kissing booth. It's, it's old news, but yeah, we do a kissing booth. It's a dollar to kiss the puppy. We'll have that coming up in early June. And then we also partner with a local radio station. Um, lovely woman there adopted one of my mama dogs after her puppies were weaned. And they do a series of events throughout the year, uh, Chick Flicks, where it's uh, they sell tickets and have just a really fun evening with prizes and whatnot. And uh, that'll be April 10th. I believe the movie is Bridesmaids. And all of the proceeds from those events come to us as well. Even though you only do a few events throughout the year, they sound like really great events. And it sounds like you definitely have the community support um, around them, which is, you know, which is good and sometimes hard to do in a, in a rural community. So it definitely sounds like you guys are in a great state and, and even more so a great community um, where you get lots of support for the few events that you do do a year. So I look forward to, to learning more and seeing the progress you make on those. And can people find that information on your website or your Facebook, where's the best place for them to gather that info? Oh, yeah. So events are on our Facebook page and our Instagram. We have a very, very active community on our Facebook page. That's really the number one place where we interact with everyone. We get pictures of the newly arrived dogs up there, you know, as, as quickly as we can, a little more quickly than we can get them up on our website and whatnot. Um, so yeah, absolutely, the Facebook page has been the most active and, and really beneficial thing for us and Instagram is a close second the website is just a little more static because Facebook can be updated so quickly that Facebook our website ends up being a little more static but there's absolutely our application and a little bit about us there as well so I know we're wrapping up on our on our time together um before we actually close that out is there anything else that we maybe missed that you want to mention no gosh I think we uh we hit it all. It's a, it's such a different part of the world. You know, you, you were just talking about our events and I was like, even there, it's completely different. People come to us all the time and want to do adoption events. And that's not what I need. <laughs> you know, it, it really has to be a compelling event for me to be willing to load up my dogs and move them somewhere else because I'm not doing it for visibility. I don't have any trouble adopting dogs. So my events really have to be only about visibility or, or, or fundraising. Um, so it, it is, I, I do love talking about it because it's so different. And I, being from Texas and being a transplant up to this neck of the world, I really understand how different it is. And not that our challenges are, they're just different. They're just, it's a different world up here. We have to address different things up here. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about them and, and kind of put, put a little spotlight on little tiny New England of like, hey, we've got some great stuff going on up here. Um, and if we could just 
get the rest of the country to, to follow along, we'd be in a great spot for animals in our country. Yeah, I definitely agree. This has been eye-opening um, for me in my time with you. And so I definitely appreciate um, the education session and, and trying to learn a little bit more about not only the area, but what you guys do and, and how you operate. And so I appreciate your time with us, um, Ross, and we definitely look forward to following you guys in the future. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for tuning into today's podcast. If you're not already a member, join the ARPA to take advantage of all the resources we have to offer. And don't forget to sign up with dubert.com. It's free and helps automate the most difficult tasks in animal rescue.